John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is our text for today, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Just by way of reminder, as you're turning to John chapter 10, we have uh, been walking through the I am statements. Jesus makes seven statements declaring something about himself using that phrase, I am. And John compiles seven of those statements uh, in the Gospel of John. And we've been exploring over the past few weeks each one of those statements and, uh, and also talking about the seven signs that John gives. And he gives us the reason why he did that in John chapter 20. He said, I, I've, Jesus did many more signs and wonders in his lifetime and in his ministry, uh, but I've selected these so that you may believe and that by believing that you may have eternal life. And so John is helping us understand that he chose these statements and he chose these signs as he was led by the Holy Spirit so that we would believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, this morning we're looking at John chapter 10 verses 1 through uh, 11. And, uh, and I'm going to ask Brandon uh, Tarby to come up and he's going to read our text for us and say a prayer for us. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by, by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it brings. We thank you that it is infallible, that it has lasted through generations, um, that we can open your word and read it publicly. Um, while other works and texts have come and gone, Lord, the Bible has stayed and is true. And we thank you and praise you for that. We thank you that you are a good shepherd, um, that we are your sheep, that in, in no way do we deserve you giving your life for us other than uh, your love for us. So we praise you for that. Um, I thank you uh, that you would go out and find the one sheep that is lost um, to come and save him and, and call him and that we can know your voice. Lord, I know that I have been there and and I have I've heard your voice, and I, I thank you for calling me into your flock, and for us, all of those who believe, for calling us into your flock, and for protecting us, keeping us, loving us, and ultimately giving your life for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in this place, work through Gibson as we go through the text. Uh, we come before you humbly, recognizing that uh, we can do nothing on our own, uh, we can speak nothing of our own, and that you are the one that does the work in the hearts of us and those um, who do not yet believe in you. So we pray for anyone here that is not part of 
um, the flock, so to speak, that they would hear your voice today and come to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We thank you again for your love. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Brandon. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the door for the sheep. Have you ever gone to the wrong door? Have you ever thought you were somewhere and you weren't? Uh, I can remember in my, uh, my second real run-in with the police uh, as an eighth grader, um, the second time I was put in the back of a police car, uh, I was invited to a friend's house. She was babysitting. It was New Year's Eve. Um, I was a, a, a lost kid, and, uh, and I went to the door, knocked really hard, and uh, the family next door to where she was opened the door and immediately thought, this isn't right. <laughs> it's midnight, and, uh, and this eighth grade boy should not be here uh, at, at calling for this babysitter next door. And uh, so immediately when I went to the right house, uh, before I could even knock on the door, the police were there uh, and they took me home uh, and, and introduced me to my parents under those circumstances, uh, which went about as well as you can imagine. Uh, they were not happy to see me uh, in that condition and they were not happy to see me with the police. And, uh, and so they, uh, they took me inside and I've been grounded every New Year's Eve uh, since. Uh, for the next five years, I spent New Year's Eve with my mother and uh, hated every single New Year's Eve, not because I was with her, but because all my friends would get to go out. And, uh, and so I was perpetually grounded on New Year's Eve, all from going to the wrong door. It had terrible consequences uh, for me. Uh, so here in this text, Jesus says, I'm the right door. Come to the right door. I am the door. And so we want to understand what that means. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the door for the sheep? He describes wrong doors, right? He says that, uh, that all who've come before me are thieves and robbers. But then he says that I am the true door, uh, the door for life. So let's understand this text and let's see how it applies to us today. First, let's get some context. Where are we in John 10? Where is this teaching taking place? Who is Jesus even talking to? What prompted it? At what stage in his life and ministry? Where is John 10 located? So let's just kind of zoom out a little bit. We remember because uh, for the last two weeks, we've been in John chapter 8. And in the, that time, Jesus was about six months or so before uh, the crucifixion. October at the Feast of Booths. And you remember at the Feast of Booths, uh, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he said, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink from the water. And I'm the living water and, and from him, living water will flow. Uh, speaking about the Holy Spirit. And then also in John chapter 8, uh, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. Uh, and uh, in John chapter 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. So Jesus has been making these statements along the way. Um, Jesus has um, already completed most of the signs, uh, the seven signs that Jesus completed in the Gospel of John. Uh, John 2, he changes water into wine. That's his first um, public ministry and miracle. In John, in John chapter 4, he gives a long-distance miracle by healing uh, the centurion servant. Uh, he heals an invalid who has been an invalid for 38 years. In John 5, 
In John 6, he feeds 5,000 people with bread. In John 6, he walks on water. In John 9, he heals the man born blind. And so the man being born blind, Jesus healing him, that occurs immediately before Jesus says these words. And so if you remember John chapter 9, it's after the Feast of Dedication, um, after the Feast of Booths, which was October-ish, uh, and Jesus would go to the cross in April of the following year. So we're just a few months before the crucifixion. Um, John chapter 10, if you look down at verse 22, it says, At this time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. So, so we're somewhere in between there. Right? Jesus says these words, um, late fall, early winter, um, and he's, so he's just a few months away uh, from going to Jerusalem and being crucified. He is in Jerusalem. Um, he has been teaching. Um, in John chapter 9, he encounters a man born blind from birth. Uh, his disciples say, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus said, it wasn't his parents. They didn't sin to make him blind. And it wasn't this man. But this man was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And so Jesus heals the man. And the man doesn't know who healed him. Um, he presents himself. And he was healed on a Sabbath. So he was healed on a Saturday. Uh, either Friday from 6 p.m. to Saturday at 6 p.m. That was the Jewish Jewish Sabbath period uh, from Friday 6 p.m. to Saturday 6 p.m. And so during that time, Jesus heals the man born blind. And, uh, and then he's carrying his mat and some religious leaders say, why are you carrying your mat? You can't do that. It's the Sabbath. And he says, the man who healed me told me to do that. And then there's this long um, questioning period. You remember the scene? There's like a trial. Um, you know, how did he heal you? And were you really born blind? And they don't believe the guy. And so uh, he says, all I know is I was blind and now I see. And then they call his parents in and the parents, they say, yeah, we know he's our son and we know that he was born blind. But beyond that, we can't tell you who healed him. You ask him. And there's a little footnote in there. They, they passed on the man born blind because they were afraid of these religious officials because it said that if anybody had believed in Jesus, they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. So now there is some opposition to Jesus within the last six months that has led to real consequences. You would be put out of the synagogue. You would be kicked out of your local congregation uh, if you believed in Jesus. And so they bring the man back in, and the man uh, who had been cast out, um, he begins to lecture them, and he says, it's an amazing thing. You don't know where this guy comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We've never seen that before. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and, and does God's will, then God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If he were not from God, he could do nothing. And then the religious leaders get furious at this guy, and they say, you're a sinner from birth, and why are you trying to teach us? And you were born in utter sin, and they cast him out. And then Jesus, uh, after they kick him out, Jesus finds the guy, and, and he encourages him to believe. Immediately following that, according to John, Jesus in the hearing of these Pharisees, they say, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have had no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem in the temple area, and he's having this sort of dust up with these religious leaders. And it's in the context of that 
that he begins to teach. And he teaches to the crowd. He teaches to the disciples. He teaches to the apostles. And he's teaching in the hearing of many of these religious leaders. And that's when he gets, let's look at verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and those sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. There's two words for that. One is a parable. Uh, Jesus often taught in parables. And if you were here last year, you'll remember that through the Gospel of Mark, um, when Jesus began to teach publicly to the crowds who would simply show up because he did miracles, he would start to teach them in parables. And if you'll remember from that time in our sermons from last year, um, a parable left the crowd saying, yeah, we don't get it. It was a deeper truth that Jesus used uh, that he um, embedded in a story. And then it said when he was away from the crowds, he would explain the parables to his disciples. So Jesus is teaching in a way that is sort of masking the secrets of the kingdom of God, the truths of the kingdom of God. And then once people are in, uh, then he begins to explain and it's really evident and you start to understand. But he doesn't call this a parable. He calls this a figure of speech. A figure of speech is something different. He says it's a figure of speech in verse 6. And a, por- a por- poroimia, that's the word he uses for figure of speech, different than a parable, is simply a word picture. And it's a word picture that a lot of people would have understood because they lived in a shepherding, agrarian environment where a lot of people would have just naturally understood that. Jesus is teaching a deeper reality about himself using a common knowledge topic, using this word picture. And they were very familiar with shepherds and sheep and all the necessary equipment and accessories and all the stuff that went with shepherding. Why were they? Why were the Israelites so familiar with the shepherding language? Well, think about the sacrificial system, right? Who started the sacrificial system that largely involved sheep? Who started that, right? We know it started likely with Moses in an organized way. It's kind of a trick question. You might say it was Abraham. Uh, Abraham in Genesis 22 goes up on the mountain. He's supposed to sacrifice Isaac, but he finds a ram caught in a thicket instead. But it even goes back further than that. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they realized their nakedness, they realized that they were guilty and they were ashamed. They covered themselves with leaves, right? And they hid themselves 
from God. And when God began to pursue them, and then God confronted them, and then God promised them after these curses that one day the seed of the woman would come, and this one seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent uh, and bring about deliverance from that. Uh, but then at the end of that, you might have missed it, in Genesis 3.21, the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. This is the first death of an animal, and it was an innocent animal, and it was used to cover the nakedness and the shame and the guilt of Adam and Eve. God provides them garments to clothe Adam and Eve, and it required the death of an animal to cover their nakedness. And many people, um, according to my uh, study Bible, see a parallel here related to the system of animal sacrifice to atone for sin later instituted by God through the leadership of Moses. We see that, and so they would have been very familiar with sheep and shepherding language uh, to the degree that shepherding continued with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. Um, the sons of Jacob were shepherds, right? Remember, Joseph was kind of held back in the tents and, and hung around, and uh, his brothers were out shepherding, and, and when they saw him coming, they said, look, here comes that dream. Joseph, let's throw him in a pit and, and let's kill him and let's do all these things to him. And, and they end up throwing him in a pit and they dip his uh, robe, his you know, colorful robe, you remember that story, in blood and they show it to um, his father and his father thinks that he's killed. It was in the context of shepherding that the sons of Jacob did that. Moses was a shepherd. Uh, David was a shepherd. And so they were really familiar with this language, and they were familiar with it as well, because not only were some of the patriarchs and leaders of Israel shepherds, but also God uses this language, right? You remember Psalm 23, and even if you're new to the Bible, you remember, the Lord is my, it's my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside quiet waters, and he, he uh, leads me into green pastures, and, and this, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. And So there's shepherding language that God applies to himself, in Psalm 80, verse 1, God is called the shepherd of Israel. In Isaiah 40, verse 11, uh, God calls his people back from Babylon like a shepherd. And even, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, even in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 7, uh, John is saying, um, the angel says, uh, who are these? And he says, uh, uh, you know who they are. And he said, these are the ones who were saved during the tribulation, and, and their robes were dipped in blood, and now they're before the, the king. And, the, and he says, the lamb that is in the midst will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Shepherding is at the heart, and this language is at the heart of what it means to understand God's care, comfort, and leadership to us. This figure of speech was very common, but it's not very common to us. Just by show of hands, how many of you are shepherds? All right, anybody? How many of you have sheep? Right, a couple of you, right? Um, I am a fan, a bit of a sucker for little baby goats. There's some up here uh, out this window. And my office used to be right behind this door right here. And when they just bought those uh, baby goats, I would just kind of look out the window and I would watch them, you know, jump doing what baby goats do. Just last week, they ran into the street, right? And then Cherie watched them as they were jumping around between cars. And yeah, there's something interesting about them uh, that kind of captivates me. Uh, maybe that's too much information. Maybe you didn't need to know all that. 
But most of our understanding of shepherds and sheep, it doesn't really come from experience, but it comes from this biblical imagery. And so it takes a little bit of learning for us to fully grasp what Jesus means. So, so let me read to you what smarter people have said about shepherding from this age that would have helped them understand. You need to know something to fully understand today's text. And you need to know something to fully understand next week's text where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. So this is what you need to know. John MacArthur writes, the picture that Jesus is painting here is a fold. Fold is verse one. A fold was where they put the sheep at the end of the day. Each village would have in that village or next to the village, a sheep fold. It's just a, a pen. It's just a place that was protected could have been next to a wall or a cliff, or it could have been uh, in some way blocked up next to the, the wall so that it was covered, but it was the most protected place to put the sheep. Uh, the shepherds um, would be out during the day grazing their flocks, and in every village that pen would be the place where they bring their sheep at night. Uh, they graze during the day, the sheep would follow the shepherd as he led them, and he would lead them into that sheep fold. The shepherd would bring them um, into the village uh, and then would bring his sheep and his shepherds. All of them would share one fold, and it was a place of protection. So there were sheep in that fold to belong that belonged to different shepherds. Uh, and each one would come into the sheep fold the next day, and they would call out, and their sheep would follow their voice, and they would lead them out. Um, and, and at the end of the day, um, he would... The shepherd would lead them to the sheep door and they would, um, he would put his rod in front of them and he would inspect them and he would check them and, he would, and, and they wouldn't follow any of the other local shepherds. They would just follow their shepherd. One at a time, uh, he would check them and he would take a look at them. And, um, and, and um, in Ezekiel 20, we hear this imagery that one day God will cause his people to pass through his rod so that he may see us. This simple enclosure was surrounded by a wall, <clears throat> and when night came, all the sheep would come into the enclosure. They would be let in one at a time, uh, and so that the shepherd could examine a sheep. The villages had many shepherds, and shepherds had many sheep. Now, they weren't necessarily wealthy. Generally speaking, this wasn't like when we think of farming today, oftentimes we think of enormous flocks and enormous herds uh, or things like that. This was just simple, enough for your family and enough for maybe a few other people that were dependent on you. Uh, and so it was not a massive ordeal. Um, they knew their sheep. Their sheep knew them. But then at the end of the day, they would hire a porter or a hireling. And that shepherd, when the shepherds would go in and rest and sleep after a day in the fields, this hired hand, you see it in verse 12, he refers to a hired hand. That same guy is like the doorkeeper. He, he's the one who guards the gate at night. And it was his job to make sure that all the sheep were in and, uh, and, and he would be paid by the shepherds. In the morning, as the sun came up, the shepherds would reappear, and they would call their own sheep. And they would lead them back out into the pasture, and only the shepherds were allowed to get by the porter, by the gatekeeper. If you wanted to rob, if you were a thief and a robber, and you came at night, you would have to climb in some other way. The gate was locked, and there was a hired person at the door. You had to get in some other way. 
So when Jesus says in John 10, Truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So when Jesus says, all who came to, look in verse 8, all who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about false messiahs? You think about from Malachi until uh, the coming of Jesus, that's about 400 years. During that time period, there were dozens of who Israel would have um, recognized as a messiah. A messiah, they thought, was like a political leader. Uh, you think about if you're from maybe a Catholic background like I am, they have a few extra books in their Bible. Have you ever read the Maccabees? You may remember the story of the Maccabean revolt, and Judas the Hammer. Uh, it was this um, family that rose up in revolt during the intertestamental period and started a rebellion against Greece and began to rebel. Uh, this, he would have been labeled as a Messiah or as a Christos in that language. They weren't always what um, Jesus fulfilled as the Messiah. Many times they were just political leaders. Many times they were just local leaders. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he mentions a dozen or more Messiah figures from 45 B.C. until uh, after Jesus' death. Forty, uh, um, a dozen or more uh, just in the 40 years prior to Jesus' coming. Do you remember that Jesus was uh, crucified in exchange for a guy named what? Barabbas, an insurrectionist. Same word, insurrectionist, is used for what Rome would have identified these guys as these sort of rebel figures that led rebellions against them. They would have been labeled as false Christ. Is that who Jesus is talking about? Are these the thieves and robbers, these false Messiahs? Are they these military leaders? Well, I think, I believe, and in studying this, that the key word, all who came before me, and in the immediate context of Scripture, that Jesus is implementing the, the religious leaders of their day. I think he's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the priests, and the entire corrupt religious system. And let me give you um, some evidence that I think that that's who he's talking about. Just in the immediate context, and anytime you're looking at Scripture, you should go to Scripture to find the answers to the questions that you have. So if, you, if you're looking for something before you go listen to a, your favorite sermon guy, or your favorite book, or, or video, or whatever, you're going to look for um, a good... Um, hermeneutic tactic is to always answer Scripture from Scripture. Always look for the context, the immediate context before and the immediate context after, and then the context of where that book is located. Uh, scripture often answers the questions that you have um, adequately, completely, sufficiently. And so in the immediate context, Jesus had gotten into this sort of dust up, this fight with the Pharisees, and there was a fight between them. And, and so in the immediate context, Jesus is describing, um, uh, he had just said, 
said in chapter 9, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus does not have kind words for the Pharisees. Just take a minute with me and flip over to Matthew chapter 23. Uh, if you're in John 10, you take a left turn, about 25 or so pages maybe. And in Matthew chapter 23... We have Jesus um, in a bit of a confrontation again uh, in the same place here. Um, and Jesus says to the crowds in Matthew 23, verse 1, and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So Jesus respects their position of authority. He says they sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. They were teaching the right things for the most part. And so Jesus honors that position of authority. But he warns them, do not do what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's uh, shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their own finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. <clears throat> Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, Christ. Jesus goes on in Matthew 23 to pronounce seven woes against the Pharisees. And listen, I mean, if you were, if Jesus was saying this to you, listen to some of the things he says. Imagine how you would feel if you were a Pharisee. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 13. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't go in and you don't even let them in. You travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when that person becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Right? Pretty inflammatory, right? Jesus used pretty strong language against the Pharisees. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Uh, verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and you de decorate the monuments of the righteous, but you yourselves are the ones currently killing the prophets. Jesus had strong words for them. I think that in the context of the Gospels and in the context of John chapter 10, I think that these are the ones who are the thieves and robbers who are coming into the sheepfold to give influence and they are here, verse 10 says, of John chapter 10, getting back to John, they are here to steal, kill, and destroy. 
think if you read Matthew 23, it's pretty clear that the religious leaders of their day were there to destroy. Jesus said that you're trying to make a convert and you're making him just as much, uh, twice as much a son of hell as you are. That sounds like a thief and a robber to me. Someone who is coming to steal and kill and destroy. See, they have ulterior motives. Any thief, any robber has ulterior motives. And their, their aim, their goal is only selfish. How can I get what I need out of these people? The thief toward a sheep wants the meat or the money from the wool. And Jesus is saying, I came to give them life and life abundantly, but you thieves and robbers are coming to steal from them. Listen, the priestly system had become corrupt and pretty much self-serving. You can read that pretty early on in the history of the temple. In the Old Testament, you can read it. Uh, you can read places where they would um, exhort, uh, not exhort, that's a good thing. They would extort uh, for false gain. They would take more um, than they should. Um, they were leading people astray. You don't have to turn here. But toward the end, in Malachi chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, God is condemning the priest. He says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he's a messenger of the Lord. But, but you have turned aside from that way, and you have caused many people to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, and so I will make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. That was 400 years before Jesus and, and at that point, God was done with the priestly system. They had so corrupted. Um, and, and the sheep didn't listen to them. Uh, Jesus said in that, in that passage, the, the sheep won't listen to their voice. And the people stopped listening to the priests and the religious leaders, maybe shortly after Malachi. And somewhere in the intertestamental period, these extra groups rose up. The Essenes, the Qumran sect groups that grew up in the area of Qumran. John the Baptist was kind of like those guys. Camel's hair and crazy coats and eating locusts and bugs and wild honey. That's, that's kind of these Qumran uh, sect groups. Um, and, and so all these groups rose up during that intertestamental period because the priestly system was so corrupt. Listen, the Pharisees, when they started, you would have wanted your daughter to marry a Pharisee. You would have wanted your son to become a Pharisee. They, they were upright. They feared the Lord in the beginning so much so that they knew that, that God's curses came upon people who didn't follow God's word and God's blessings came upon those who did follow God's word. That's, that's how the Pharisees started. They were a, a grassroots, groundswell movement to reform Israel's religious culture. But they erred in the sense that they, instead of just protecting God's word, they built fences around God's word. So you could never really break God's word until you broke multiple layers of their own laws. You understand what I'm saying? If God's word says don't break the Sabbath, they defined and put a fence around the Sabbath laws. That means don't take 72 steps on the Sabbath. So they hyper-fundamentalized, that's even a word, I don't even know if that's a verb, 
somebody can fact check me. You probably don't even fact check me. So just go ahead and acknowledge that that's wrong. Um, but they hyper made this, the scripture hyper strict saying things that God didn't even say, um, squeezing out the freedoms in the life that there are in Christ in order to uphold their own rules and their own laws. So over time, these systems became corrupt. Why? I had a conversation with somebody this week about uh, homeschooling. And, um, and this particular person was saying that, you know, it's safer in this sort of homeschool environment. And, and I just challenge that notion a little bit because oftentimes we say that you know the danger is out there and the truth is that that sin is right here you think about the problem the problem is not out there somewhere the problem is right here myself you all of us have great potential for evil you could take the holiest 10 people that you know and go live on a plantation on a beach or somewhere far away from all civilization, and you will not escape the effect of sin. That's what happens. The Pharisees started good, and, and, and sin is within each of us. Thank God for Jesus Christ who gives us a new heart that longs to follow him. So let's, let's wrap this up. At verse 9, we understand shepherding language a little better. We understand the door. Jesus says, I am the door. In verse 9, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Second time, he says, I'm the door. Verse 7 was the first. Now he says it again. And this time he says it with a promise. If you go in through me, through the door, what's the promise? You'll be saved. That's what it says. Look at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He contrasts that with the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And then he says, if I'm the door and people get saved through me, I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. So what does it mean? For Jesus to be the door. Of what significance in it is the door? The door represents two things primarily here. Authority. A door for sheep represents, number one, authority. Only one shepherd who knows his sheep could use the door. The only one who had the authority or the ability to get access to those sheep. I used to work at a college, and one of the roles that I had at the college was that every concert, I put on four or five concerts a year, and so every year I would get the band and their you know, 35-page writer, and it would tell about all the things that they needed in order to perform crazy things that these writers have, like one band needed 12 blue towels. <laughs> Before every performance, they wanted the 12 blue towels. And they're so bizarre. One of them was, uh, we need um, uh, multicolored M&Ms. That's the way the language of the contract. Of course they're multicolored. I don't, know what, I don't know what that meant, but they were just random, specific, maybe a certain brand of water or a certain kind of towel or a certain kind. One band, uh, I think it was Cademan's Call, they requested a 12-passenger van and they requested a driver to take them antiquing. So whenever they came to a new town to do a show, they would want to go shop for antiques. And that was written into their contract. 
It's beside the point. But the point I had here is this issue of authority. Because with all these bands, uh, they would all request a green room or a private room with a door that was guarded. Nobody without a backstage pass or nobody without authority could get into that area. They wanted no public access, a private door, and only the one with authority could go into that place. That's what Jesus is describing when he says, I'm the door. It's his authority, his sheep, his sheepfold. He has that authority. The second thing that this door represents is access. There was one approved way in and one approved way out. Only one approved doorway for entry. This is a picture of salvation that Jesus is giving here. Just imagine that if the middle of this room were divided right now by a wall that cut right through here. And all of you on this side were outside of the, the, the salvation. Um, you were outside of Christ, outside of salvation, not yet a believer. And that this wall was impenetrable. You could not get through this entire wall except by one doorway, one gate that would lead you from this side into the heavenly side. You're all the heavenly people on this side. This picture is one gate, one door. A question for orthodoxy. If uh, I know many people who do this. Scott Surin does this a lot. He'll ask people, do you think that there are many ways to get to heaven? Just as a simple diagnostic question. If you're asking an unbeliever or if you're talking to somebody from another church or you're talking to somebody who's a believer and they still say, how many ways to heaven are there? And people say, oh, there's many ways. I mean, all roads lead to God or something along those lines. This is a denial of this particular text. Jesus says, I am the door. In two weeks, Larry's going to preach. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father but through me. That's John 14, 6. That's Jesus declaring exclusivity. If you want to get to the Father, it has to come through Him. So let me give you three imperatives as we close. Three ways that you can apply this. Three ways that you can apply this text. Number one, be on guard against selfish shepherds. Be on guard against selfish shepherds. It's a lot of shh words. I'm going to be careful here. Um, Ezekiel 34 in Ezekiel 34, God prophesies through Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you rule over those sheep. So they're scattered because there is no shepherd, and they become food for all the wild beasts. Doesn't Jesus say this? In Matthew 9, 35, when he looked at the crowds, they were harassed and helpless. What? Like sheep without a shepherd. It's the same picture in Ezekiel. The sheep are scattered. 
They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, the Lord God declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but have fed themselves and have not fed the sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may be food for them, may not be food for them. Who is he talking about? Next week, right? I am the good shepherd. That's the text. John 11, 10, 11. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel. But then at the end of that time, um, there will come a, a, another false shepherd. And so for us, we have to beware of selfish shepherds. How does this apply to you today? I just want you to be careful who you allow to influence you. Every month, sometimes every single week, somebody will send me a clip. Hey, listen to this. What do you think of this guy? Listen to this. Uh, sh- sh- look at this video of this teaching. What do you think of this? Or do you trust this particular person? Or is that a helpful person for me to read or follow? And listen, seven, six, seven out of 10 are typically health, wealth, and prosperity gospel kind of teachers. That is people who benefit from a public platform of preaching the word personally and overwhelmingly. That's a bad sign. We don't follow teachers because they're shiny and because they have a dynamic ministry and a wonderful personality and powerful illustrations and wonderful examples and a big ministry and they fly a jet and all those kinds of things. We must be discerning about who you allow to influence you. Beware of selfish shepherds. I spent a lot of time listening to the Mars Hill podcast you may listen to that podcast about uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Very surprising, but you see in that podcast, uh, 15 or so episodes, um, the rise and fall of a, of a leader. And, uh, and it just shows you that we should be discerning to follow the great shepherd first and foremost. We don't follow people. We follow the great shepherd and then the shepherds that he has placed over us in the context of a local church to the degree that they meet the criteria of a shepherd. you got to be careful out there. I mean, deconstruction and deconversionists and ex-evangelicals. And listen, in the last 10 years, you find more people denying the faith in Jesus Christ and leading people astray. I, I, I found a band, loved their music, started listening to it. And then uh, I found out the music was written 10 years ago. Great lyrics, great stuff, really good music. And then I started to read their blog and listen to the podcast about them. And, and, uh, and it turns out they've walked away from the faith. They no longer believe these things. You've got to be careful who you listen to and who you allow to influence you. And the second application point for us today is that... You have to be aware of false teachers because there is a false shepherd coming. In Zechariah 11.15, the prophecy is, 
The Lord said to Zechariah, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who won't care for the perishing, who will not seek the scattered, who will not heal the broken, who will not sustain the ones standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to that worthless shepherd who leaves that flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye, and his arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be totally blind. Who is Zechariah talking about? He's talking about the Antichrist. We're warned that there will be an Antichrist coming, and that he will deceive many people, and that he will lead many people away from the faith, if that were possible. This isn't news to us. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's a good shepherd, right? That's what a faithful teaching pastor does. Because, but Paul says in verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That is, they're going to listen to every podcast, and they're going to listen to every video, and they're going to watch every uh, episode. They're going to they're tune in to people who teach what they want to hear that suits their own passions. And then he says they will turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. As for you, though, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Listen, don't be too enamored with human leaders. Don't be so enamored with a personality that you follow everything that they say. They are flawed and sinful. Be wise with your affections and your loyalty and your devotion to human leaders. Keep your heart close to Jesus and follow him above all. And then the final point of application for us, um, not just to watch out for selfish shepherds, also to watch out for false teachers, but third, go straight to the gate. Go straight to the door of salvation. Jesus says, I am the way of salvation. He's the only door for salvation. Um, just a few weeks ago, we did a baby dedication, a child dedication, where he dedicated the families. It's not a child dedication as much as a family dedication. And we gave every family this, this book, Little Pilgrim's Progress. A really good book. Um, if, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I recommend it. Uh, I had to read it in seminary and loved it. Uh, and then when we picked this up, um, Lily read it. Uh, and then I borrowed her copy, and, and I, I, I read um, through it as well. At one point, you know, Christian, the, the, uh, the young man in the story, he's so overwhelmed by this burden of sin on his back. And as he's overwhelmed by his burden, he meets Evangelist, and Evangelist tells him to go to the gate, uh, and he points him the way. Um, the evangelist looked at him very, oh, he says, what are you crying for? For there were tears in the child's eyes. Little Christian felt so comforted by the sound of evangelist's gentle voice that he told him all of his troubles at once about his burdens. 
And he said how he wished he wanted to obey the king and how all of his playmates had laughed at him and how even his nanny and Christiana did not believe the stories about the celestial city were true. Then Evangelist looked at him very kindly. Those stories are all quite true, he said. The king loves little children, and if you will obey him and begin your journey, he will watch over you all the way, and then you will reach the celestial city where you will be happy in his presence forever. I would go now, said little Christian, if only I knew the way. Evangelist turned around, looked across the field along the path by which he had come, and he said, Do you see that gate at the other side of the plain? And he pointed to it. Little Christian's eyes were still dim with tears, and he could not see the gate. Well, said Evangelist, there is a light shining above it. Can you see that? Yes, I think I can. The way to the celestial city is through that gate. Now I will give you a message from the king. And the evangelist drew out a piece of paper, which he put into Christian's hand. And the words that were written upon it in gold and beautiful colors said, I love them that love me and those that seek me early and earnestly shall find me. That's the king's promise to his children. So do not cry anymore, but go quickly straight to the gate and knock. And one of the king's servants will open it and he will tear, tell you where to go next. You remember the story. He does it. He goes straight to the gate. He gets kind of lost a little bit, but he goes there. And he enters into the gate. And, uh, and there at the gate, you know, in this kid's version, the evangelist is an owl. And, uh, and he's standing at the gate. And little Christian comes up and he knocks. And in the scripture, Matthew 7, 7, Knock and it shall be opened unto you. This is the picture of the gate, of the straight way. Later in Christian's journey, on his way to the celestial city, he encounters uh, another person named Ignorance. And Ignorance does not have the robe of salvation. Ignorance does not have the paper. Ignorance is on the way to the celestial city. And Christian, through a long dialogue with Ignorance, says, what do you, you, you can't get to the celestial city unless you go through the gate. And ignorance says, but I've traveled all this way, and the gate is so far out of my way, I think I shall just come. And he continues to seek on the way and, and is um, stopped at the gate and is not allowed to come in. This is a picture of, I'll close with this, I promise. <laughs> uh, Matthew 22, Jesus tells this parable. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call all those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell all those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. The ox and calves are slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, Others seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled. But when the king came in to look at the guests, 
He saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Make a beeline to the gate. Don't skip Jesus. If you think you can earn your way to heaven by some sort of moralism, some sort of religious activity, some sort of works-oriented faith, Jesus is the gate. We must go through him. Father, thank you for this word today. I pray that it's been clear. I pray that as your word is clear to those who have ears to hear, I pray that today you will be about quickening those spirits in the room that are not yet, have not yet entered through the gate. They have not yet been saved. I pray that today might be the day of salvation. I pray that for those who have, that they would beware of those thieves and robbers who seek to destroy and steal and kill those selfish shepherds who seek just to get fat off the sheep, I pray, God, that you would help us, give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to follow the good shepherd. We thank you for your word today, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.